Warning, today's episode contains a rather frank discussion about issues related to mental health, mental illness, and suicide ideation. The world didn't give a fuck about what was right or wrong. Instead, it allowed us to operate like ants on a hill, waging our little battles and rush hour traffic without any thumb on the scale weighted towards justice, fairness, compassion, love. How else could I explain that a random man I didn't know felt he had the license to direct such unbridled hostility towards me? I thus sat there in my car, belted to the driver's seat, but unmoored in every other way, unraveling at the enormity of the world and the cruelty that filled it. The next day, my heart turned off. Those were the thoughts I had right before my first very frightening encounter with mental illness. And this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Welcome back to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. This is Joanne Molinaro, your host. This week's topic, mental health. I was actually at a really large conference yesterday for the International Association of Korean Lawyers, and there I got into a discussion with a fellow bankruptcy litigator, and we were talking about how adept young people are nowadays at talking openly about mental health and both the fragility and resilience of the human psyche. He then asked me, how is it in law firms these days in the U.S.? He was from Toronto. Are folks open about mental health struggles in the workplace? I had to pause for a moment, and then I gave the following answer. We're much more open than we used to be, and we seem to have the support of upper management and seeking out help if we need it. But at the end of the day, I don't know, I'm always a little skeptical that I can truly be honest about it without it coming back to bite me. The real danger in mental illness is the false belief that we must suffer it alone. But sometimes, the only way to prove to people that this is a lie is to come clean, to vitiate shame with vulnerability, as my therapist has said. So, here's to vitiating shame and empowering vulnerability. My first conscious brush with mental illness occurred when I held my Komo's hand for the first time. I was eight years old when Komo, which means paternal aunt in Korean, my father's second younger sister, came to visit us in our Skokie house. As I clutched at my new auntie's left hand, I discovered she had only four fingers. When I asked mommy why Komo was missing her pinky, Oma answered, because she sliced it off with a knife. I swiveled my head at the answer, but I'm always busy doing something or other in the kitchen. Why would she do that? Did it hurt? Amma shrugged. 
I guess she was very upset about something, and cutting her finger off made her feel a little better. At the time, this was the extent of my exposure to mental illness. My Como was kind, patient, and yes, a little quirky, but I loved her in the way that children love new toys, and as she emerged each morning from the small bedroom at the back of our home, she brought with her a sense of adventure that attends the unknown. My most vivid memory of Como is how she often tried to cook for me and how I ate every last drop of her somewhat bland, not terribly good food because I didn't want to hurt her feelings because it must have been extra hard for her to cook with only four fingers on one hand. When I was much older, my mom described that during Como's visit, she once woke up in the middle of the night to some unusual noises in the kitchen. She ghosted down the corridor, still in her nightgown, only to discover Como pacing back and forth atop the linoleum tiles, wielding a kitchen knife. When Amma asked her what on earth was the matter, Como replied, God told me that Satan is in this kitchen and that I must kill him. Even though I understood implicitly that there was something strange, even dangerous, about a woman who would cut off her own pinky, I certainly had no way of knowing at that time that my Como suffered from schizophrenia, something I would learn about several years later when she was ultimately hospitalized for her illness. I would also come to know that the idea of harming one's physical body to cope with distress was not completely unheard of. One of my aunts on my mother's side, my tulche imo, or number two auntie, purportedly tried to rip her front tooth out with a wrench when she grew upset. She also confided in me that when she was sad, she often sat with her dog outside in the outhouse. In Korea at that time, many urban homes still had their bathrooms outdoors, and she would sit there with her dog and cry. Of all my relatives... I related most to my Tulce Imo. She looked like me, round, buxom, and stocky. As I grew older, we often joked how she and I were the only women in the family who were blessed with natural TNA, in Korean of course, as well as long, curling eyelashes. Imo also had a riotous sense of humor, often making me laugh until I cried. But as revealed by the wrenching of the tooth incident, she was prone to profound sorrow and empathy, crying over and not just with her dog, her children, and family, if she sensed even a modicum of their pain. I related to this part of her, too. Because she lived in Korea, her influence on me was somewhat limited. However, it was nice knowing that my body shape and size wasn't a complete anomaly, which is often what it appeared to be when one looked at my tiny skinny as a beanpole mom or my very lean and athletic looking dad. And it was equally comforting knowing that I wasn't alone in the instinct to cry in the bathroom with my dog when life grew overwhelming. And thus, maybe it wasn't a coincidence that my first confrontation with my own mental illness came at the end of a fork. I was in seventh grade, which is, in my opinion, one of the most wretched times in a young person's life. 
all the sheen of starting junior high in sixth grade had worn off, and I didn't have the exciting prospect of leaving for the birth of high school quite yet. I was also going through the hormonal ups and downs of puberty, which manifested in a closet full of black clothing and really thick eyeliner when my mom would let me get away with it. Speaking of my mom, this time in our um, cohabitation (laughs) was probably among the more restive. We were fighting constantly about my grades, which were never good enough, my clothes, which she thought were too revealing, and of course, boys, who, as she made abundantly clear to me, were completely off limits to me until I turned 18 years old. These fights had an unnerving effect on me, perhaps more so than the average fight between a mother and daughter. Each one ended in tears on my side and a cool silence on my mother's. She called it the silent treatment, a tool she'd readily employ to ensure that I wouldn't soon forget whatever lesson she was trying to impart. I imagine it was also her own defense mechanism, a way of shutting out the source of her distress until she was able to recover her patience and be a parent again. It was after one of these fights and during one of these freeze-outs that I took a fork from the school cafeteria, went to the girls' restroom, and began scraping myself. That's right. I didn't have the guts to use a knife, And maybe that's why I was able to tell myself that there wasn't anything really bad about this. I wasn't suicidal, clearly, since I was using a dull fork from Wilmette Junior High School's cafeteria. I found, too, that the action of focusing so singularly on the pain I was causing to my body somehow leached away some of the pain I felt in my chest. I was doing something about the hurt, and if that meant I had to pay for it with marks along my inner forearm and wrist— so be it. It was also, in all honesty, a cry for attention from my mother. And it worked. The first time she saw the marks along my arms, she grabbed them and told me how silly I was for doing this. She told me never to do it again. I could tell, even then, that I'd caught her off guard, that she was torn between fear and frustration, and thus went back to the old parenting standby of pretend it's no big deal. I didn't listen to her. I continued to harm myself, even though it never really garnered the kind of reaction I craved. Eventually, I graduated from forks to knives to razors. It was a habit I continued all the way until my divorce from my first husband. Eventually, it stopped being about attention and became instead a way to control the panic, the abject terror I had for a world that seemed indifferent to me. It's hard to describe even now what it was I was looking for from my mother when I harmed myself, much less back then when I was still just a big mishmash of prepubescent hormones. And it's not particularly easy for me to share these things with all of you because there's a great deal of shame embedded in these memories in my desperate and ugly cries for attention, a desire I still try to suppress. But one memory sticks out to me for its sheer delicacy. It was in the locker room of Nutria High School. My best friend, Chuyun, and I were changing into our smelly gym uniforms. 
The night before had been a bad one, and therefore my arms were covered in bright red scabs that had barely just formed. I grew careless about hiding them from Ju, and all of a sudden she grabbed my wrist. Joanne, what the fuck is this? Ju was Korean-American, but she spent a good chunk of her childhood in Korea. When she came back to the U.S. in high school, she spoke with this slight Korean accent, one that only a fellow Korean-American could possibly detect. So when she uttered the F word, it was tinged with notes from my mother's native tongue. Before I could even think to answer, tears began to ooze down her round face. I was trying to hold back this flood that was gathering in my throat all of a sudden, like out of nowhere. I was so unprepared for Chuyun's reaction. It was like she was pushing into the emptiness that I'd held inside of myself for so, so long, demanding a seat inside the darkest parts of my heart. Don't ever do this again she said, shaking my wrist. I nodded, barely breathing, because I wanted to hold this moment in my hands, feel the contours of its beauty until I memorized them. Because I knew it would be a really, really long time before anyone ever joined me at that table again. Suffice it to say, I had terrible, like really bad separation anxiety, especially in college. First from my mom, you may recall the time I missed the bus back home to Chicago, called my mom sobbing from the bus stop, which then prompted my mother to drop everything she was doing and drive three hours to pick me up from Urbana, Illinois. If you haven't heard that story, I'll tell it again some other time. It was really embarrassing. And then... Separation anxiety from my very new boyfriend. I started dating right on cue when I turned 18 years old, which is when my mom finally relented and said, okay, you can start dating now. He was my very first boyfriend, first love, and later my first husband. He was a super senior at the time I started college, so would only be sticking around for one semester before going back to Chicago to start his adult life. I was unprepared, to say the least, for the anguish of saying goodbye to him, the constant gnawing on the fringes of my brain, suggesting that certain doom lay around the corner. My body was operating at a five out of five when it came to anxiety, and as a result, it was only a matter of time before I started doing what I could to find pockets of relief. When cutting myself wasn't good enough, I started taking over-the-counter sleeping pills, sometimes dozens at a time. It was the only thing that would shut my brain up. You might be wondering at this point, well, what was your brain saying that was causing you so much anxiety? It's the same old refrain. Without having my first boyfriend there to see and talk to and hold and touch every single day, I grew incredibly paranoid that eventually he would get sick of me, that he would get bored of me, and that he would dump me. 
And that sort of anxiety was rolling around in my head at all times. Now, one of those times when I tried to shut my brain up, my roommate grew worried and called 911 when she saw that I'd taken a bunch of sleeping pills. I was rushed to the ER, terrifically embarrassed, but adamant that I'm not depressed and was most certainly not suicidal, which is what they suggested. Still, the school put me on probation for my purported suicide attempt and required four visits to a therapist before I was put back on regular status. At the time, I was absolutely furious. Furious at my roommate, furious at the EMTs, furious at the doctor, furious at every single person, most particularly the school, for having the audacity to call what I did a suicide attempt. But let me tell you, there was this moment when I was sitting in the ER and the ER physician, the psychiatrist, came in to see me and he was so calm and he was so kind and tender. And he said to me, Miss Lee, it looks like you have a chronic case of the blues. And I burst into tears when he said that. And I have to believe that the reason I wept and the reason I got so emotional when this doctor said it like that was because there was so much truth in it. So however angry I was at the time, in retrospect, there was probably a little more truth to the school's understanding of what was going on than what I was willing to admit. It was during this time that Amma could no longer ignore the problems I was having. Not only was she required to take me to therapy, she struggled with trying to parent me from Chicago. I cannot imagine how agonizing it must have been for her to know that I was getting into trouble, ending up in the emergency room, and placing myself within the crosshairs of the university while she could do little more than observe from hundreds of miles away. She did what any other Korean mom would do in that situation. She called the pastor at my campus church. <laughs> I laugh about this now because it was largely useless. I had a very nice conversation with the pastor, the same man who ultimately told me that I should pursue a career in teaching or healthcare because my real job was eventually to have babies. Calling him and asking him to help me was such an umma thing to do, though. But as I look back, all I can think of is how enlisting someone she'd never even met into such a private space in our lives evinced the severity of her desperation, how she was grasping at whatever she could to keep her daughter safe. I had my first nervous breakdown, if you will, right after getting accepted into the University of Chicago Law School. I know, why would getting such amazing news throw me into such a tailspin? I remember the day I received notice of my acceptance. I was working as a paralegal when the admissions office called me to congratulate me. That evening, my boyfriend came to pick me up from work, and as soon as I walked out of the building, we held hands and we did the happy dance together right then and there. This memory remains one of the most precious, even though it was with someone I would ultimately end up leaving. It was because I was so happy that eventually I grew unhappy. More specifically, I went to bed that night with an uneasy feeling in the pit of my stomach. Am I allowed to be this happy? 
by the time I woke up, I was convinced that the answer was a resounding no, that the aphorism, what God giveth, God taketh away, was directly applicable to my life and that he would take away the thing most precious to me, my boyfriend. I was certain it was only a matter of time before God struck him down with some sort of grave illness or a terrible, tragic car accident because there was no way in the world that God would let me have everything I wanted, the man I'd loved since I was 13 years old and a rock star career in big law. It was against this strange emotional backdrop that the world pulled the trigger and catapulted me into what I still describe as one of the most frightening chapters in my life, one that was so terrifying that for many years I would just pretend it never happened because even remembering its existence was simply too dangerous. My boyfriend and I were driving home one evening. It was snowing very badly, and all the roads were slippery, so everyone was driving like an idiot. I grew impatient with the car ahead of me and was probably inching closer than I should have to its rear end as we neared a traffic stop. I tapped the brakes, but of course, the snow caused the car to skid gently into the rear bumper of the sedan with a light thunk. I'd never been in a car accident before, so I remained in the driver's seat, a little bit in shock, allowing the surreal to settle over me like a soft blanket of snow. My boyfriend in the passenger seat blurted, oh shit. I didn't know what to do. Did people still get out to do the whole exchange insurance info for such a minor collision if it could even be called that, especially while it was practically blizzarding outside? A few seconds later, the question was answered when the driver got out of his car, tread carefully to the back of his vehicle to inspect his bumper, and then swiveled around to peer into my snow-laden windshield. I can't be sure what he managed to see or what he thought he saw through the whizzing wipers, but it pissed him right off. He threw his hands up in the air before crashing them violently atop the hood of my car. He then stared menacingly through the windshield at me, daring me to get out. I didn't. Instead, my boyfriend stormed out of the car with, Oh no, you fucking didn't. I watched the two men trade verbal jabs while the snow continued to land on their eyelashes, the lapels of their peacoat, their bare heads of hair. I couldn't hear anything they were saying, but it didn't matter. The noise around me dissolved into a low buzz, the way it often did right before I passed out. Only I didn't pass out, because the universe was shouting at me, had been shouting at me the minute that man's hands slammed against the hood of the car that I was sitting in. And what was the universe shouting? You do not matter. Growing up, I often felt this really strange, sort of curious sense of unease anytime I was too far from home, even if it was with my family, like if we were on a road trip to like the Wisconsin Dells or if we went apple picking, especially if we had to stay overnight at a hotel, like this strange feeling would come over me. In fact, I still sometimes get like reverberations of this feeling today, especially when Anthony and I are doing a lot of traveling. It's not a comfortable feeling. It's like an echo of an echo. 
one that injects me with the immensity of all the empty spaces in the world. Sometimes I refer to this as the parking lot feeling because of all the lonely and unfamiliar parking lots I hated seeing in college when I left the safety of campus, where I already felt so detached from those I loved. In fact, there was this one incident with the parking lot, and it was at a motel. It was right after I had returned from the emergency room from my, quote, suicide attempt. A good friend of mine took me to a motel room to get away from the dorms, not realizing that removing me from a place that I'd grown so familiar with was actually the opposite of what I needed at that time. And ever since then, I think, is when I started calling it the parking lot feeling because I remember how empty the parking lot of that motel was. I also often write a lot about the screen door of the Skokie House. If you guys are loyal listeners to the Korean Vegan Podcast, you know that I'm always talking about the Skokie House and that really iconically screen door of that house. And that's because it represents to me all the safe things inside of our home. Mostly my grandmother's command over the spaces in my life, her capacity to sweep me up into her strong arms and away from danger, the soft click, click, click of her teeth as she pulled the tails off mung beans while sucking on a piece of really hard candy. Outside the screen door, however, lay all the perils of a world that didn't know how to say my name, didn't care to know what my name even was. Wide swaths of hearts too busy, too preoccupied, too heavy for empathy or even regard, where cars could slide across a road slick with soft snow and collide into an endless reservoir of apathy, rage, disdain. The world didn't give a fuck about what was right or wrong. Instead, it allowed us to operate like ants on a hill, waging our little battles and rush hour traffic without any thumb on the scale weighted towards justice, fairness, compassion, love. How else could I explain that a random man I didn't know felt he had the license to direct such unbridled hostility towards me? I thus sat there in my car, belted to the driver's seat, but unmoored in every other way, unraveling at the enormity of the world and the cruelty that filled it. The next day, my heart turned off. I don't really know how else to describe it. I just stopped feeling anything for anyone. I didn't love my boyfriend anymore. I didn't even really care for my parents or my brother. At least that's what it felt like. And even as I'm repeating it, I'm getting emotional because it's scary for me to even go back to this time in my life. Where once resided a hot, roiling bucket of thick emotions for those I cared about, now sat an empty, impenetrable tomb. My worst fear was coming true. I was going to lose the love of my life, not because he came down with cancer or walked in front of a speeding bus, but because I, all of a sudden, stopped having the capacity to love. Or so I thought. 
it made no sense. And I'm sure you're thinking right now, like that makes no sense. And it really didn't make any sense. How could I feel nothing for him or anyone else, but be in such distress over this fact? If I really didn't care about him or my parents, why would I care that I didn't care, right? This is the logic puzzle that continued to tug and tug and tug at my sanity until one day I woke up, walked over to my closet to get dressed for work, and collapsed into a puddle of clothes on the floor. I started to cry and wondered whether the only solution to this horrifying vacuum that had sucked up all my love and replaced it with this despicable abyss was to end it. End everything. End me. Amma found me like that in my bedroom, unable to move. I didn't know what to say to her, so I told her the truth. Amma, I don't want to live anymore. And then I leaned into her, and she held me the way she once did when I was a small child, while I cried into the shallow alcove of her neck. Afterwards, she got up, went downstairs, picked up the phone, called into the emergency room, and told them she was taking the day off. A few minutes later, she came back into my room, gently pulled me off the floor, and walked me down to the living room, where a cup of hot tea waited for me on the coffee table. She sat me down and then nestled into the love seat adjacent to me, tucked her cool hands between her knees before saying to me, now what's the matter? Mental illness is often thought of as a secret illness, one that brings shame upon not just the individual suffering from the ailment, but their family as well. This is particularly true in Asian families. According to one study, despite high levels of depression symptoms, there remains low utilization of mental health services among Korean Americans. Why the apparent reluctance to treat mental illness? Well, according to the same study, Korean Americans tend not to seek help due to misconceptions of mental illness and treatment and the stigma attached to mental illness and treatment, as well as the lack of culturally and linguistically appropriate mental health services in the United States. Dr. Jeffrey Liu, a psychiatrist at McLean Hospital, explained that in Asian culture, Mental illness is seen, and I should emphasize incorrectly, as taking away a person's ability to care for others. For that reason, it's seen as taking away someone's identity or purpose. It's the ultimate form of shame. This explains why I remained completely clueless about my aunt's schizophrenia until I was in law school, and only then because she was hospitalized. Until then, she was just a little kooky in a somewhat endearing and loving way. 
This also explains why my parents never once even thought about sending me to a mental health care professional during all those years in junior high or high school, even though evidence of my distress was literally carving up my arms like railroad tracks. But they had no problem signing me up for the guidance counselor, one who was dedicated to helping me achieve the highest SAT score and getting me into the best college possible. It wasn't until I was required to see a therapist in college upon threat of being kicked out of school that my mother finally acquiesced and took me to a therapist. To her credit, she dutifully drove me to each appointment and never once made me feel ashamed about the process. I think that this introduction to mental health care as something more than a treatment for alcoholics or drug addicts or the truly, quote, insane, was a critical component to my mother's ultimate capacity to be there for me when I needed her most. Without this coerced exposure, I'm not sure Oma would have had the tools necessary to support me when I suffered my first real breakdown, one that was far more dangerous and the little flirtations I'd had during college. And by tools, I mean simply the language necessary to fight off the urge to enshroud my depression within the muffled, padded walls of shame. Instead, she was able to treat the illness with the clinical objectivity of a healthcare professional, unclouded by judgment or bias, while lifting me up and out of the hole I found myself in with the sheer power of her love. I know that by now, I've painted a motley portrait of my mother. Some areas might be dark, shaded, or even hard to look at. Some parts of the picture may not make sense with others. Amma will always be the woman who birthed me, named me, loved me, and perhaps at times hated me, or at the very least, hated the fact of me. But of all things, to me, my mom will always be the woman who came into my room, joined me on the floor, held me in her arms, and rescued me. So that's just a small chapter of my ongoing pursuit of improved mental health, which is really the only way I can accurately describe my journey. What is mental health anyway? I like to analogize mental health to physical health, there are some illnesses, chronic diseases, and injuries that are concrete, easily definable, and though they may not have a cure, they're recognized and legitimized by medical science, like my comos schizophrenia. But physical health is not limited to simply preventing or treating those things. I know many of us who are listening to this podcast run, we try to keep a relatively nutritious diet, or otherwise avoid excessive alcohol or candy <laughs> to improve our health. That's right, to improve our health. In the same way, mental health shouldn't be viewed merely as preventing serious illness or breakdown. We should strive to pursue optimal mental health. And this, my friends, may not be a race with a definite finish line, but it's still one that we can run together.
Okay, so now we are moving on to Ask Joanne. So every week I invite my listeners and newsletter readers to submit questions on which they may seek advice. And this week, Speckle has said, Hi, Joanne. I'm a very emotional person. I laugh in serious or sad situations, and I'm very easy to get upset or get angry about small stuff, stuff I think isn't even worth getting upset over. And it's very visible to others. Do you have any tips about not wearing your heart on your sleeve so much, or to be able at least to mask an emotion, reaction that is inappropriate during the moment? Well, Speckle, this quandary of yours is very relatable. I, too, have a tendency to wear my heart on my sleeve, and it's definitely gotten me into a right pickle a few times. I'm very much guilty of having really strange emotional and what I would call somewhat inappropriate reactions that made me very embarrassed. I once wrote an entire blog post about how I would Google how not to cry, (laughs) because I was so sick of how often I would burst into tears, like zero advanced warning to myself or to anyone. And I have a few thoughts as well as some practical advice to curb your, quote, inappropriate reactions. First, and you probably already know this, when your emotions are getting the better of you, it usually signals a much larger underlying problem that is going unaddressed. For instance, I've noticed that when I'm particularly stressed out over a big presentation at work or like an upcoming long run, I tend to get angry about small stuff just like you. For example, yesterday morning, I was running late from the gym and had about 40 minutes to get dressed and get my makeup done for a very large conference in which I was the keynote speaker. I pulled into the garage, got out of the car and bulldozed my way to the door, but it was locked and I nearly lost my freaking mind. My husband has this compulsion. He must lock all the doors of our house for no reason, like when he's at home. Unfortunately, and he knows this, neither of us has a key to the garage door. And therefore, I had to reopen the garage, walk all the way around the front yard and enter through the front door of our house, after which I then had to go back to the garage to close the garage door. And even as I was still steaming at my husband's door locking necessities, he was happily and obliviously sipping away at his espresso in the kitchen while I stormed up the stairs. I knew that I was getting angry over something quite silly. And the reason for that didn't have anything to do with him, but was because I was really nervous about the upcoming speech I had barely practiced. When you start noticing that you're biting people's heads off for small things, that you're crying over spilled milk, literally, ask yourself, is there something going on in your life at that time that's causing a bit more agitation than usual? Sometimes it'll take a little work to really get down to the nub of your anxiety and identify what's actually causing you to lose control of your feelings in a way that's making it hard for you to interact with others or simply function at all. The key, of course, is having the wherewithal to step back and notice this about yourself. But it sounds like from a macro perspective, you've got that covered. Otherwise, you wouldn't be asking for this advice. However, It becomes much harder to see these things about yourself from a micro perspective when your emotions are so in your face that it's almost impossible to gain any perspective. Here 
it might be helpful to jot down a list of words that describe how you act or what you do when you are visibly upset by, quote, small stuff. It could look like, shut down and stop talking to people, hide in my room, play really loud music even though it's annoying, criticize my friends to make myself feel better, raise my voice or even yell at people I love, eat every ounce of ice cream in my house, pick fights with my partner, rage clean the house, cry in public. Forcing yourself to write some of these things down will help you identify these patterned behaviors in the future so that rational speckle can then say, oh, I'm doing that thing again where I fly off the handle for small things. Let's hit the pause button for a minute and see what's really going on. In the example with my husband and the locked garage door, I was able to say to myself, oh, I'm just like super stressed out about the presentation. And then I literally forgot about it until I read your question. Finally, Speckle, I think it's important for you to remember that you are who you are. When my dog Rudy died earlier this summer, I thought I was losing my mind with grief. I was so surprised at the enormity of my sadness. And when days turned into weeks, turned into months, I finally turned to my husband and I asked him, what is wrong with me? Why won't this feeling go away already? And he said something quite loving to me. Babe, I've said this before, but you feel things so deeply. It's your superpower. It's what makes you so beautiful but it's also what makes this so hard. While your emotions may sometimes get in the way, Speckle, and there is certainly value to learning how to navigate that roller coaster when it happens, you should also know that your capacity to feel things as deeply as you do is also what makes you so uniquely lovely. Inside the crucible of your feelings, you will develop empathy compassion, emotional generosity, and the courage to be vulnerable, as you have already demonstrated to all of us. So, Speckle, don't always be in such a hurry to stuff that heart back up your sleeve. Wishing you all the best. Thanks, Speckle, for submitting your question to Ask Joanne. If you have a question on which you're seeking advice and it can literally be about anything, make sure to check out the show notes below and hit the link, Ask Joanne. All right, moving on to updates and random things. First off, giveaway winner. Thanks to all of you who entered the Cooking with the Spirit giveaway. Both winners have been notified by email, so make sure to check your inbox, including your spam box, to see if you are a lucky winner of a signed copy of Tabitha Brown's instant New York Times bestselling cookbook. What I'm watching. Okay, so I caved. I, I did. I caved, and I finally gave in watched the first episode of House of Dragon on HBO Max, or I watched about 20 minutes of it. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I was not into it. And this is coming from a diehard GOT fan. 
well, up until the last season, I have read every book that George R.R. R. Martin has published and am pretty familiar with GOT lore, i.e. all the prequels and all the little side fictions that he's written. So I've been immersed in that universe, God, since I was like, I would say in law school. So I come to this with that sort of fervor, but I simply could not stomach another show with needless and purposeless violence, death and betrayal. Like I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I don't know if it's me, like maybe this is just the place I'm in, in my life right now or the show or maybe some combination thereof, but I'm not recommending House of Dragon, particularly as I know many of you are, for the animal lovers. Once again, just reminding you that there are signed copies at Now Serving LA, a bookstore that features only cookbooks, and they deliver everywhere. So if you want to pick up a signed copy of the Korean Vegan Cookbook, which is amazing if you don't have it, you can hit the link below and you can order yourself or as a gift, a signed copy of the Korean Vegan Cookbook. What I'm cooking. Well, this week... I cooked up what my husband calls one of the best pasta dishes he's ever had, way better than anything he'd get at any restaurant. I know, I know, he's biased, but I'll let you be the judge. For those of you who signed up for the newsletter, you will already know that I included in this week's missive my recipe or take on Gigi Hadid's viral vodka pasta. There's definitely a Korean twist to this recipe. For those of you who are listening to this podcast, I will gift you with this recipe as well. Just hit the link in the show notes below. And of course, if you want access to not just this recipe, but all my amazing recipes, all you have to do is sign up for the Korean Vegan Meal Planner. All right, we are now on to parting thoughts. A few years ago, while sitting on the bench at 3rd and 40th in New York City, waiting for the Jitney, a bus that would take us into the Hamptons, Anthony, who I'd been with for three years already, ran his index finger along the length of my arm. What are these? What happened here? I don't think I've ever seen these before. I had always assumed he'd seen them and just not asked. In retrospect, I should have known that his eyes sometimes have a tendency to slide past things like this. Wait, you did this to yourself? Why? he asked. I started to say all the things I always say when people ask me about the scars along my arms. I was stupid. I was young. I was disturbed none of which he accepts as real answers. There's a line forming now for the bus we are waiting to board. A mother and a daughter chat over their luggage. The mother is wearing khaki shorts and sandals. Her daughter is in a white cotton blouse that slides off her narrow shoulders by design whenever she swishes her hair back and forth. From somewhere, a breeze moves through our little waiting area as though prowling for the best place to land and I wonder whether it ultimately perches on the girl's bare shoulders. The pain on the outside 
helped to dull the pain they were causing me on the inside, I finally managed to say. And there it is again, that breeze, as if nudging closed a door that had remained open for far too long. Well, obviously, you're right-handed, he says. Thanks, everyone, for joining me for another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor and hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Leave a rating and a comment below. If there was something particularly inspiring or insightful about this week's episode, it would mean so much to me if you shared it with your friends, your family, your loved ones, your colleagues, or even on social media. Otherwise, until next week, I wish you a wonderful and beautiful day. Thank you.